buddy. And even if you don't have a buddy, I'm Layman Pascal on the Integral Stage. And a little while ago, as part of our ongoing series of discussions with John Verveke on the future of religion, Bruce Alderman and I had a talk with John about so-called subtle energies and subtle bodies. That's an area that I love to explore from a post-metaphysical, integrative, metamodern, or coherent pluralist perspective. The phenomenology of subtle energy plays a large role in how I relate to the world, and it converges nicely with my general concern for what I'm calling metashamanism, the need to affirm and explore, reimagine, diversify, empower, and study variants of both traditional and instinctive shamanic potential for the age of the increasingly weird meta-crisis in the global village. So I was intrigued to hear John's subsequent talk with Robin Hummel about shamanism and subtle energy and naturally invited him on the stage. Robin is a shamanic practitioner and researcher, a student of Jungian psychology versed in some of the new cognitive science, and in particular, he's exploring the archaic healing and transformative practices of the Proto-Indo-European shamanic lineage. Hi, Robin. Hey. <laughs> um. Yeah, how yeah. old were you when you first got consciously interested in shamanic practice? Uh, consciously, um, how old was I? Well, that was like, uh, actually more like consciously regarding the shamanic practice. That would be, uh, I guess like three, three years ago or so it was, yes. But I was like more uh, before that into, you know, more of the the Jungian uh, psychological uh, lens, you know, shadow work, anima work, uh, these kind of kind of things, and um, different like more like mystery school related things, you know, the ancient pagan mystery schools, and been looking into that, and uh, that's kind of where where uh, where everything kind of started, but then. Uh, the interesting thing about the, the well, how I kind of like got interested in shamanism is I had a dream about it and uh, and I followed it. I was just like, okay, it's kind of part of my own uh, journey of, I guess, individuation, you could say. To uh, yeah, so that was kind of part of it. What was the dream? Uh, the dream was was me. Well, I didn't have any, any any like shaman drum, but it was uh, the dream was about me painting a shaman drum and like um, putting it together, and uh, so that kind of started the whole thing. So I started to look into it more and more. I already knew some stuff about it, but that, that's kind of uh, how it started to get a little bit more, I guess, uh, practical than theoretical uh, because I did I had looked something into it uh, beforehand, but. It seems like a lot of people today are drawn to the entheogenic and psychedelic plant medicines when they're interested in shamanism. But you yeah. put a lot of work into uh, sound and rhythm and transformational journeys with drumming. Yeah. What do you find works really well for you with drums? And what is what is your drumming practice? Could you describe some of that for us? Uh, what well, works well with with drums? Uh I do have to say, like with with uh, regarding you know with with drums, that very much for me, it's just 
I don't know. I'm not into like the psychedelic stuff, so it's kind of why I guess the drum was speaking more uh, towards me. But I think it's also just uh, partly uh, because of the shamans that I talk to, they use drums instead of psychedelic um, substances. So that's kind of like how that kind of then also in, uh, evolved. But to be honest, like I've always had something for drums already uh, from from the beginning, uh, like as a as a young kid already. So I already had something like a connection with with rhythm and and drumming and um, these kind of uh, techniques. So it just kind of felt natural. And for me, with the drumming, it's the, the drumming for me, it's really the, um, you know, it's when you, when you use it, it's, it's not just like, you know, the, the beat of the drum, but it's very much that you, you are participating in, uh, in it. You're, it's, not as easy as uh, at first, you know, than just listening to a recording, like how some of the core shamanic practice uh, practitioners uh, do initially. But for me, I just started off uh, right at the bat, just using the drum and like uh, trying uh, to go into trance that way. But it's just, um, yeah, for me, it's just the connection to the body that that's the most important uh, factor in that, that it's very participatory and very, it puts you very much into the into this like present moment awareness, and I, I very much like the like the dancing, chanting aspect that I do, you know, in my practice. Also, um, I really much like that as well about it because it very it's very focused on 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 cultivating this sense of uh, flow state, this sense of yeah, very much that uh, that kind of sense. You think it's important for a person's spiritual and psychological practice to be rooted in body and nature, because there are a lot of traditions that don't focus on that very much. Um, well, it, it depends on you know what uh, what you really mean regarding that. It, it is true regarding you know different traditions having different kind of focus but i would say and then then but that, that's kind of like you know my own bias from from where i'm coming from really but i would say it's very much important to have that connection to nature to uh to the natural world because it's not just uh this connection to the natural world but it's also you know this connection to ourselves as well to you know uh, from a union lens like our instinctive nature uh, that we're you know like tapping into and and similarly with uh, the spirit guides you know the the spirit helpers and also some of the other rituals that i do it's very much linked to to nature towards these different um animal um archetypes you could call them and um and it taps into it very much taps into the transformational within the within the psyche you know the transformational potential that's there and i think that's i guess uh, yeah one argument would be that that's just your personal bias but another argument would be that um we're at a point in history where the human civilization is having a lot of problems with how it relates to nature and other species. Oh, uh, that is and true. And we very much need our spirituality to be 
focused on the ecosystem at the moment? Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the you know the long term trend, you know, going from the Neolithic, you know, through uh, all the way through to you know what the I guess they could w- could be called like the Piscean Age. There seems to be very much a trend from all the w- uh, all the way from the beginning of civilization, slowly like you know moving away uh, further and further from nature to the point where there, uh, this transition between agriculture and cities, where you know you can see in like different um, spirits, for instance, like the Roman uh, Lares uh, spirits, like you know they used to be spirits of place connected to nature but then they became uh, spirits of uh, city districts and 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 such places and you know there's a slow movement away from uh from that kind of connection with nature that it originally had more and more towards you know uh, city life more towards you know the the technological even like now you could say uh, in in the modern age and it's moving you know it's this direction away from it but then at the same time I do feel that you know moving away from that uh it might lo- lose a lot of its original uh, connection its original you know the, the deeper you know like uh embedded meaning in it if it gets more and more like, you know disconnected from its original base um yeah yeah i think it's a really interesting thing about whether we treat shamanism as as one path among many paths that we have available to us now or whether we treat it as sort of the source of all the paths and maybe even the normal form of human self-development practice because it predominated for hundreds of thousands of years and these other paths have existed for only a few thousand years. When you think about it, do you think about it as one option among many or do you think about it as sort of the the source and the basic thing that works underneath all the paths? Well, uh, when it comes to that, um, I guess the, the real basis, you know, what also, you know, uh, the shams I talked to, uh, would say would be animism and then there's you know the, the that what they see as shamanism you know in asia for instance that they that that they you know like um, identify as shamanism that has a particular kind of like you know set of structure and and framework but then then again if you really look at it there in the mystery schools there's a, a different type of like trans work with spirits and possession also happening even though it's a different framework. Um, but I do think that in the original sense, if you you know trace it back more towards like you know the Neolithic and the 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 cave rituals, for instance, as well, if you go more back towards that, it becomes very shamanic in, in that sense. I wouldn't call it exactly shamanism in the way of what it is in Asia, uh, for instance, right now, or other uh, cultures, but you know it's it's cultural specific. But I do think that there is a core element there that is shamanic, that's present within all these different, um, yeah, um, cultures. But I do think that um, that over time, a lot of traditions have uh, lost, you know, the the connection to that uh, underlying base. It's become more focused on the. Um, I guess you could say like, you know, uh, certain traditions have become very focused on the higher spiritual plane, casting the what they see as the lower world, as demonic and fallen, where there is no, uh, not exactly such a 
there's it's there's more nuance within the shamanic tradition regarding that generally speaking in in the more ancient sense i mean there, there's in some traditions like you know a buddhist influence for sure and you know and that that uh, also can uh, shape like how in in particular lineages it's viewed but generally there's way more nuance within shamanism than in in like a lot of the later traditions and there seems to be um yeah and i think it I've, i do think it uh, it's very important to you know like to understand uh the the spiritual world in this uh, lens of nuance because you know so one does not end up uh, throwing away the baby with the bathwater regarding you know uh, certain aspects because a lot of these things also uh, are connected to not only aspects of nature but also aspects of our uh, own true nature you know and our own wholeness as well it's interesting to think about uh nuance being lost over time and through the traditions uh when you think of that side by side with this sense that we've been developing and growing and maturing as a species how do you think about the difference between you know, maybe we've advanced or grown up from our primitive beginnings versus maybe we've left behind a lot of sophistication that they used to have and we might even be uh, less wise in many respects than they were. Well, I, I think when it when it comes to that, and uh, I don't know, I, I, I kind of feel that in a way we've evolved like uh, in, in a more material sense. And like you know, there's there has been a lot of uh, progress. I would call it knowledge. There's been a lot of progress of knowledge, but maybe not so of of um, wisdom. To to some degree, like, but you know, the the thing is that uh, if you if you look at it throughout history, you know, the different cultures, like in in um, in Egypt and in, in uh, Rome and uh, Greece and uh, you know and uh, also. Uh, for instance, you know, even uh, in like you know the uh, in older cultures as well, there is this like uh, th there is this slow like loss there like con continuously within all of these different civilizations. You know, there is this loss of particular knowledge that, or well, really maybe I should say it better, a particular wisdom that gets lost over time. And most of the time, it's it's uh, actually just that people forgot like what it, what the original meaning of it is. They lost that connection to it, and can see it, for instance, with like a particular instance that I know about. It's not shamanism, but you know, it's a good like uh, example of losing wisdom. Would be with Rome, for instance. They used to have these uh, particular rituals that they used to do in the ancient, you know, kingdom era where uh, later at the time of the emperors, they didn't do it anymore. They didn't do these rituals anymore, but they were an important part of, um, of well, I guess from a spiritual lens, uh, like a spiritual maturation of the individual. But they stopped uh, doing these because it started to just become more and more um a symbolic thing where in the end it was just like, yeah, like a priest now says you're now mature. Uh, congratulations but it's like but it misses the entire symbolic um aspect and the ritualistic aspect of these um you know of, of these rituals which contains the wisdom and similarly 
Uh, I do feel that over time we, you know, as humanity, uh, not out of our own fault, like we we didn't do it on purpose, but we we just forgot like what it meant or like why why is this important? But I do think you know we can through you know like anthropology, but also through you know looking at different cultures, what they you know like the wisdom that's still there, and and trying to figure out from you know the. Um, uh, looking at these ancient cultures, you know, we can put this wisdom back together and we can start to uh, reassemble it and like figure out like, okay, well, why did they do these rituals? Like what's the symbolic uh, meaning for it? And how does this affect the psyche? How does this affect uh, our psychology? And with this, um, you know, what does this do for, for the individual um, spiritual development? Yeah, there seems to be a, a lot of potential to combine lineages that are reasonably unbroken in passing wisdom down. Yeah. Cultures that have a lot of fragments that are left over that could lead to a reconstruction of the ancient methods. And then also the yeah. experiences of people today in, in shamanic experience and shamanic settings. If those things come together, we might be able to get a pretty good idea of what was going on in the archaic approach. I do think so. You know, it's it just, um, I do feel like very much just about, yeah, putting all these puzzle pieces together, you know, but it, it's quite the, quite the task, very much. I do know like of one particular tradition uh, that's been like um, a while ago, like of interest, or two actually that's, that are very much of interest for, you know, for me lately has been... Uh, originally, it's the Manchu um, tradition in Ninguta, China. There's a very unbroken line there from the Neolithic till now uh, regarding their traditions. That's been very interesting. And then you also have the, um, the Bon tradition as well in Tibet. What do you think is the... What are some of the main differences between Asian shamanism and Indo-European shamanism? Uh, the main difference, I would say, is just uh, the framework and like uh, the the focus of it. Within the Asian shamanism, uh, you have the shaman who does the the healing in a in a more um, it's a communal task, you know, like that that the shaman does. But then it's more uh, he 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 helps in the, uh, you know you know individuals or or like a family and he uh you know it's it's more like um he either travels to towards people or uh people come towards the shaman and it's more um very much like a a role that the shaman um um performs where more if you look at the indo-european uh, uh traditions in the ancient sense it's more you could call it like more democratized shamanism. It's more, uh, it's like communal. The role isn't uh, particular to uh, just a singular individual. It's more spread, even though there are for sure, like you could call them professionals in some sense, you know, the, the, the priests or, you know, these figures that, that uh, perform such roles, but it is generally more a kind of ritual where uh, people are initiated into it. Uh, they partake in in the ritual as a group, and then they, you know, uh, and that's 
and I'm speaking here from the ancient, you know, um, traditional uh, sense, you know, from way in the in the early pagan days uh, regarding this. But that's how they uh, seem to have have done that. It's very much more initiatory, much more about um, a shared ritual where, in the Asiatic sense, it's it's more the role of the shaman. Uh, they are trained by an elder shaman. There's a lineage, just particular, you know, uh, they all have their own uh, spiritual framework, their own mythology, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's it's different. It's different. And uh, if we would want to bring the the actual ancient traditions back in in you know the in the European sense, it would be something more. Uh, if if one would be want to stay true to that to that essence of of how they uh, yeah like how they you know used to to do it in in that sense it would very much more be about a communal shared ritual where everyone partakes in in the trance state in in the um, in in this even like psychedelic experience because they used to actually use psychedelic substances. Such as like there's a particular fungus that grew on barley that they used, or mushrooms and um, such. So it's it's uh, so it's very much different. Your sense is that in the in the Asian framework, there's it's more likely that there's um, like a, a job in the village of being shaman, and that person has yeah. experience and then provides services to the community. And in yeah. the Indo-European lineage, that person is more like. Uh, the person whose job it is to help everyone else also have shamanic experience. Basically, yeah, that seems to be the main uh, the the main uh, difference regarding that. I'm interested in the difference uh, of in intensity of experience. Right, you're talking about uh, you know you can eat a bit of a fungus off barley, and it's it's uncertain how intense the experience is for people because we have access to very powerful psychedelics now. And for some people who are interested in shamanism, they think of it as the ability to go into very intense altered states. But uh, drumming and dancing or uh, a little bit of sacred tobacco uh, is the other route. Like some people are interested in in a yeah. shamanic state that's just a little bit off of normal. And some people are interested in one that's very far from normal. How do you think about the difference between those two? Uh, the difference? Well, I mean... I would kind of, um, you know, use in that sense, you know, generally the the analogy that um, this UK shaman that I, uh, that I know that's been like initiated in the Mongolian uh, tradition, for instance, how he would talk about it. Uh, it's very much, you know, you, you can either stand at the, the, um, the shore of the beach, you know, you're not that much into trance or you can plunge way uh, in, in the depths of the ocean. It just depends. It's like similarly, even with drumming, there's different ranges of how deep you go into the trance state, how deep you you go into it. It's not it's not the same uh, all the time. So and like for sure, there's like, uh, yeah, substances uh, out there that uh, would have uh, quite an immense uh, impact nowadays. And, um, yeah, but I don't really know too much about, you know, those substances. I just know that they can have uh, quite an impact from the little that I have heard from some people that I know that, uh, that are more into those kind of substances. 
What about um, imagination? How, how would you say the shamanic use of imagination differs from the ordinary human use of imagination? I would say regarding imagination very much that it's it's more an act of of um I guess you could call it communion where it's it's very much not the it's like it's not like ego consciousness trying to like like control whatever is being imagined or visualized it's more about letting um letting it arise on its own and to to have a relationship with it with uh it's like a it's very much focused upon building also with the spirits it's about a relationship with the spirits it's about a relationship with it's very much not about either this thing or that thing but it's very much about the the relationship between and it's about i guess yeah, and it's not about like either the subjective or the objective. It's that what's in in between. It's it's about it's very much you know about the bardo state. You could call it, <laughs> but it's it's just yeah. But relationship is very very uh, important in that, and it's it's a very important factor. And it's from a Jungian lens, uh, you could could see it like that. You know, ego consciousness and the unconscious uh, has uh, uh, built this relationship to each other where one uh, does, you know, ego consciousness doesn't try to impose something upon um, the unconscious. Like this is, this is, it's like, yeah, you can have an intent, but then uh, after having that intent and what you want to do, there's, there's this need for, you know, to listen uh, to the unconscious and let those things arise. Similarly with the shamans, they they listen to the spirits. They listen to um, what what arises and act accordingly. And it's a, it's it's an act of uh, surrender, very much. What do you think of when you say a word like spirits? What do I think of when I say a word like spirits? Yeah, what what does that word mean to you? I mean, regarding spirits, I would, well, you, I would you very just much mentioned listening to the spirits and listening to the spirits is something that uh, maybe you and I are familiar with, but probably a lot of people have no idea what a sentence like that means. Well, I would say maybe to, to frame it into, I guess, a more, uh, I guess, uh, union framework that maybe uh, some people are more familiar with. I guess because you know there, there there's this distinction between I guess certain spirits in in that sense we could like um the the mind-born spirits that are from a union lens and the personal unconscious they're mo they're more in the realm of complexes how uh, the unions would talk about it but then there's like the deities and and the, the helper spirits and and the other spiritual beings that are more in the type in in the lens of like archetypes and uh when i talk about when i talk about spirits i'm talking about the archetypal energies uh that are inherent in in the world and you know what jung would call the collective unconscious and it's very much about tapping into into that and um in a way the the line gets um because the shamans I talk to that um, 
for instance, the UK one who knows also Jungian psychology, uh, he he talks about the fact that the line is very blurry at times, uh, especially in the beginning of what you're working with, like if it's mind-born or world-born or like if it's like archetypal or just very like uh, personal. But over time, you know, you, you learn more about it, but it's very much, um, yeah, I would say like uh, the, the actual spirits in, in that sense would be uh, would be very archetypal so uh from a union lens like archetypes and i would say you know it's it's represented you know uh, it's kind of within us in a way but it's also within the world uh, itself and it's it's very much connected to to i guess yeah life uh life itself you know the the life force and, and vitality of uh, of the world uh, when we were talking about Asian and Indo-European traditions, we were talking yeah. a little bit about kind of the uh, what the shaman has to offer to the rest of the society, right? It might be sort of special abilities, it might be healing, it might be the invitation yeah. to go into different kinds of experience. But on the flip side, there's a question of what the what the shamans need from the rest of society in order to be supported, in order to be encouraged. Uh, what do you think, like? If you, what do shamans need from society? Like what would be required for there to be a, a healthy, robust kind of shamanism in our own civilization? Well, what I, what I do know from, from the Asian shamans, it's very much about, well, a lot, a lot of the people that are there within these communities, you know, they they are already uh, to different degrees embedded in the, you know, you could say the mythological framework of the, the shamanic, uh, you know, uh, practice that's there. So that's it's very much uh, an important uh, factor in that. Next to that, I mean. Well, yes, they they ask some money for it, and they you know they uh, for their services and, and and stuff like that. But I I do think the the most important one right now for yeah for for the West would be the, the mythological framework. So the the language which to speak the the symbolic language, and for I guess uh, more people to have this like symbolic understanding of things because that would um, really help in. Oh, overall, with regarding the the entire practice, I would think also for the for the shaman, because it's it's important to have that shared um, language uh, going on. So there's like, um, yeah, it's like uh, it would really really much help uh, regarding that to to have that 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 understanding being there. Even though technically it doesn't have to, because you know you can speak directly to, I guess, from a union lens, you could say the unconscious. But I do think it would, uh, it would make it easier for shamans to to do their work. And I would feel, uh, you know, based on from what I know regarding the Asian shamans, it also uh, makes things more more clear for people what they're talking about. Because then um, someone can come with with a particular issue like they they're uh for instance uh, one example there was uh, like one man who uh, came to a shaman who was like oh, i am um i'm being plagued by a bokshi which is like uh their term for like um, a witch and uh so then the shaman knew what to do there's this this um 
yeah, this communication possible. Even though I guess the shaman can't figure it out uh, on on their own too, but I do think it would very much help to 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 have that. And I guess for uh, more people to be to some degree initiated into it, because in these cultures, people they pray to to these different deities, they interact with the spirits. In you know, there's this culture of interaction there with the natural world, with the spirits, and it's it's. And it grows out of that. If that like soil, that spiritual soil isn't there, it's very difficult to to embed like a a shaman in 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 that. It's like trying to uh, take a full grown plant and put it on concrete, but there is no soil. So for a robust shamanic culture to flourish the background civilization has to have a lot more experience of the world as a symbolic landscape yeah yeah um not all shamans are healers but there's a strong idea that you can yeah. bring some healing to others if you've been able to heal yourself and True. very often right that's sort of uh, primitive psychotherapy in a way, but it goes beyond that as well in terms of transforming your inner fragmentation or neuroses yep. or hypersensitivity or any number of different things. What's your own experience been of of healing through shamanic practices? Uh, quite the transformation, I, I would say. I've done a lot of uh, work regarding um, soul retrieval, and it's been uh, very much uh, regarding my practice, uh, kind of the the main focus. And yeah, I don't know like how to to even put it, but I guess there's a lot of like behavioral changes and like um, you know, like psychological changes that occur um, through these shamanic journeys that, that I have uh, that I've done. Where I've been facing. When you, say, uh, when you say soul retrieval, is that uh, like one soul that's been lost and is found again? Or is that the gathering together of many parts of a soul so that they can be integrated? Uh, many parts. It's uh, because the, the soul and the shamanic context is uh, can be, you know, fragmented. So there's many aspects of, uh, of a person's uh, soul and being. So you can kind of see it like uh, if you would uh, envision the soul as, I don't know, I guess like this um, energetic, I don't know, um, version of uh, of yourself just to just for the sake of metaphor. It's not like that, but it's just for the sake of metaphor. And something traumatic happens, for instance, here in my arm then uh or like psychologically uh in some way then a particular part let's say it, uh like just for metaphor's sake it's connected to my arm then this part gets disconnected so i lose this like access to to this particular part of myself and then the the goal of the soul retrieval is to reestablish this uh, relationship and connection to this part to put this part back so i can become like a a more functional human being again and that's very much um yeah a big part of that and then there's the the negative like 
there can be negative spirits involved uh, that like keep that part uh, locked away and you, there's a sense of negotiation sometimes or fighting spiritual battle or uh, otherwise but you know it doesn't end uh, with just that even if the soul part is retrieved this you know fragmented part of the self that uh, gets retrieved that had been broken off uh, due to trauma there's still um a need to continue to work on that and in the shamanic context uh there's particular either uh, sim symbolism involved uh, you can think uh, of particular like dolls that they make like out of wood or something or other materials or a particular um, ritual that the person has to do or they have to come back to the shaman um for further rituals as well so it depends do you think there are aspects of the psyche that can be transformed only by enacting it in the external world as opposed to merely treating it psychologically like when you talk about making dolls and things like that um, that's a way of enacting your own psychological needs in objects and spaces in the world as opposed yeah. to merely going to a room where you speak with a therapist and you go through the journey only as a internal and verbal experience. I think, you know, like part of it from a union lens would, would be, you know, can be classified as kind of like an externalization. Yes. Of, uh, of the, you know, what's internal externally. And I've done such uh, rituals as well. Uh, and they, they are powerful due to the symbolic nature of it. So it, it's speaking to the symbolism and with it to the unconscious and that creates, it's like an externalization of an internal struggle uh, or conflict that then uh, can be resolved in, in, in this manner. But then there's also another aspect regarding that as well, you know, that coming back to, for instance, with the drumming and the dancing, it's, uh, for instance, when it comes to trauma, for instance, it also helps in in the in a psychological lens to you know like if uh, someone is you know uh, stuck in this like trauma uh, in in trauma or like you know they 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 went through that they can also from a psychological lens be stuck in like the freeze response for instance for a very long time so. The movement of the body, the rhythm uh, that is repetitive also can, in that sense, you know, just uh, next to all of the benefits of like, you know, the trans work itself can help the individual already to connect more with the body and get him, themselves out of this freeze response uh, that one just doesn't get out of. Uh, if one would only talk about it verbally, because that's a very like you know, it's it's it has to do with the body mind connection. It has to do with the the body itself, and it is something that we cannot like rationalize our way out of, because it's it's um, very much about the, the the very ancient you know parts of the brain that that uh, go um, beyond just mere thinking, verbalizing, and um, can only be really accessed through, you know, like stimulating the the vagus nerve the, to stimulate this the the body in this particular way to to um, through through this rhythmic uh, movement that one does to get oneself out of this state, and it's also important to know from from what I've been come to understand from a psychological lens that it's important 
for the person to be out of this like freeze response state for the integration of the soul parts to even uh, be able to occur because um you, you need to be able to process it because there's all there's also emotions involved like if you look at a lot of the um, the um, like footage for instance uh, from asia about the shamans and they treat uh, a patient there's a lot of emotions involved too like the the patient starts crying or like they start to uh, to shake or otherwise have a reaction you know and that's the body processing uh, what's you know been connected to this fragmented uh, piece of the of the soul that's been being brought back but, you know it's it's important yeah, that they that they're engaged in it, you know, and that's it's an important part uh, too about the the shamanic rituals too. It's not just sitting on a chair, but you have to be engaged in it. You have to really participate uh, in it uh, to for it to have like a, a good and strong effect. Yeah, we mentioned Jung a few times, who was a student of Freud, but Wilhelm Reich was also a student of Freud, and he did a lot yeah. of research on. Um, the way we suppress our breathing in order to prevent the eruption of the psychology and the emotions that we need to process yeah. and integrate into ourselves. What have you noticed about breathing processes, you know, in shamanic healing and shamanic journey? Uh, breathing processes. Um, so how do you... Well, I'm just curious about, well, two things. One is yeah. the role of breathing in terms of entering into trance states, because when you're dancing or you're chanting, you're also modifying your breath, and that's helping your organism go into a different state. But True. also in terms of what you were talking about earlier of um, being able to really engage with the material that's coming up rather than just sitting there, how much of that is... Um, a pattern of breathing that allows your organism to be aroused and stimulated as opposed to a pattern of breathing that kind of keeps you calm and together. I mean, I have not actually um, thought uh, much regarding, you know, the, the breathing part uh, regarding shamanism. I know about like Qigong and like uh, general breathwork practices. And I do know that, uh, that this also, you know, taps into the vagus nerve and with that also, you know, taps uh, into it in a manner that brings up the repressed. Uh, but it's, but it's, it, it has to do in, in that sense with that, it has to do with the, yeah, with, uh, with going into this kind of fight or flight um, mode to go into that, but then also to bring it back to, to, uh, to a sense of, of calm. And it's uh, but with qigong, it's it's slightly different than breathwork practices. It depends, you know. With qigong, it's it's more about the rhythmic movements. But it's it's generally it's about uh, yeah bringing oneself out of the the freeze response or the fight or flight response to trigger oneself out of that to get to this you know more rest and digest state where the processing is is possible. Um, but I do know from experience, at least from from the shamanic practice that I've uh, been doing, that generally it's very active uh, with the with you know with the dancing, the chanting, but also uh, with the drumming. Uh, what the shamans in the um, Asian traditions do as well, it's very active. It's very exhausting and uh, can be. There are some cases with, for instance, rituals that they do to initiate a shaman that are very. I guess uh, very taxing. They go on and drumming for for days, and um, 
So, you know, I, I don't go as, as, uh, as extreme as that, but uh, it can be very, uh, I guess, yeah, taxing on, on the body. Uh, it can be. And uh, pretty intense as well. Depends on uh, what one experiences. Because um, part of part of that with the shamanic journeys too is like when I go into it, if you like that, what you encounter, for instance, you know, in these journeys can very much trigger something within yourself as well. Like, you know, emotions coming up or whatever you experience or see can really trigger a strong emotional response as well. So uh, that's 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 very much part of it as well. You know, this is just an aside, really. I'm also very interested in the role that breath might have in putting us into communication with parts of nature. So I know that some people find that like yeah. if you're on a mountain or if you're in ice water or things like that, it can, if you allow it, change your body's breath rhythm. And it might be that our ancestors were able to adapt to different environments because they allowed those environments to alter their breathing and then alter the way their body was functioning. Hmm. Well, but another thing that comes up for me is, you know, I've heard you use the term wind horse. Uh, and I yeah. know that's shared by a couple of different cultures, but wind horse seems like it has these two different aspects. And one is very much related to the breath, to prana, to the notion that there is a kind yeah. of an energy in our breathing in the air. And then the other aspect of it is sort of the aspect of consciousness and the ability of consciousness to uh, ride on thoughts and feelings and perceptions and experiences. Um, mm -hmm. what, when you think of wind horse, um, what do you think of? What do you mean when you try to get across with the idea of wind horse? What I want to uh, get across with regarding wind horse, I mean... In some sense, you know, wind horse, uh, yes, is, is linked to the breath and from, you know, uh, and, and, and very much, you know, the, the idea is that, that through the breath is also like how we, you know, like, uh, connect not only to the world, but also, uh, connect like the different parts within ourselves, uh, together, you know, the spirit and the spiritual and, and, and the, the physical gets uh, connected through the, through the breath in in that sense but it's also wind horse is is a very uh, it's it's also very much about the transformation of negative into positive you know like negative behaviors into positive uh, behaviors and it's also very much a, a process of um i would say um of yeah transformation transmutation and integration and and very much about um the cultivation of not just vitality, but also about awareness, you know, the awareness of, uh, of all that we, that we are. So it's, um, it's very much linked, uh, linked towards that. And it's also, you know, um, often represented in, in, you know, in mandalas also in the center as the symbol of the soul as well. What is the role of wind horse in transforming negative behavior into positive behavior? How does that work? When it comes to... The role in it regarding that... I, I don't think it's partly... It's the, uh, it's the growing awareness, but it's... Um, it's very much like, you know, you can see it in, in terms of mindfulness, 
that's that's connected to it because you know a lot of the practices um can be very much classified as as very much like mindfulness practices but i think uh regarding that also with you know practices such as qigong there's also this connection to vitality and the and the body as well so it's very much about um yeah strengthening that this like uh mind body connection so you know internally within in the brain but also within the brain all these different parts of the brain together to strengthen that and to keep working on that so that you uh start to be, uh, cultivate this sense of awareness and mindfulness so you you start to become more aware of these patterns within yourself become more mindful um of them and through this sense of mindfulness you can then uh, start to slowly you know like change these uh, patterns of behavior and i would say from a union lens it's regarding the vitality uh, part it's also uh, you know like with the body it's also connecting us to more of our instinctual nature as well so you know like There's, this you know, uh, deeper embedding yeah um i was thinking about yeah um different kinds of empowerments and blessings right there's a there's a human version of that where uh, ritual with people or the presence of an individual or even yeah. their conscious intention can transmit empowerment but there's also a, an ecological there's a natural component where certain places certain parts of nature seem to be able to offer us a, a blessing of some kind when you're looking for a a good spot, a power spot, a, a charged aspect of nature, what are the signs you look for? How would you decide that this was a really good spot or a good tree or a good river um, to receive something from? Well, first, really, you know, I started off with um, there's like uh, close to where I live, there's a Sami um, um, stone, a sacred stone. And um, most of the time, I'm very close to the sacred stone and the uh, bog that, that is there. And um, I'm aware because of that stone that it's sacred ground. So that's kind of like how I identified it. Otherwise, uh, I guess I listen to the spirits and they tell me where to where to go, what's a good spot. Something that like... And and it's it very like differs like in, on in in different journeys like different spots or different locations uh, and different times even or um, end up being important in in like the I guess the symbolism of uh, of the entire journey. So there's a lot a lot that comes uh, regarding that as well. But I guess in the shamanic uh, traditions in Asia. They would go, you know, to to particular sacred uh, sites most of the time, and uh, you know, like uh, mountains, but also uh, different um, uh, different uh, sacred sites, such as you know, the um, particular shrines or um, or stones with, uh, for instance, you know, uh, prayer flags, uh, for instance, in Mongolia. I think it's called an ovo. Uh, I think if I'm not mispronouncing it, but um, yeah, and these are um, and these are like old sacred sites that they you know have been using for a very very long time. 
So they use these particular spots. And similarly, you know, in here in Finland, I'm using, you know, the the old um remainders of the uh of the Sami culture, kind of their power spots, you could call it, uh, for for the practice. Is the uh, is the Sami culture um very prominent? Like when you were growing up there, is there a sense that it's still somehow vibrant or that people know about what its power spots are, or is it more of a distant memory? Well, I or, um, originally uh, came from the Netherlands and not from uh, from Finland. Uh, so I didn't really grow up uh, with it, but I do know that um, mainly it's in Northern Finland where, you know, the Sami still are and there's still some uh, remnants there, but more, a little bit more, you know, south where I uh, where I am, uh, where there are still some of the the sacred uh, stones there. It's very a uh, distant memory, and I only know about it because I've looked into into these sacred stones and I know the significance of them. But generally speaking, you know, a lot of people would not really know the the significance of either these stones, the bogs, or um, the particular caves that they used. Yeah, it's yeah. It's I very, live, uh, uh, where I live, yeah. there are a lot of Finnish people, and I've spent some time uh, in Norway, where a bunch of my ancestors are from. And uh, in both cases, I find very little public awareness of, of the older lineages yeah. in those places. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's the case here as well. It's very there's. Um, there were some shamans in Finland uh, that I that I had some contact with, and they know about you know about such spots. But generally, the general public no, they would not know about that. They don't really know much about it. Uh, very little about like the about particular spirits uh, too. Like there's some awareness of uh, of that in Finland, you know, regarding the the mythology and the spirits uh, that 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 are uh, that are here, but. Uh, that's a bit stronger, but uh, the, the actual deeper, deeper layers, uh, maybe not as much anymore. But it's Do just you have uh, the much, time. Um, awareness or interest in the uh, like American indigenous traditions or the South Pacific, or, or are you mostly focused on the European and Asian lineages? Um, European and Asian, really mostly. I do read some like articles that are from like the Sacred Hoop magazine from uh, from this one uh, shaman who you know works together with some core shamans and like Harner and and such, but like uh, there's some like uh, Native American traditions that uh, sometimes you know are featured in there, but that's kind of uh, the most that I really uh, learn about it. There was something about like a Lakota tradition, for instance, and such, but. That's very rare that I really look into these things um, deeply. It's more like Indo-European and uh, the Asian shamanic um, um, traditions. And I think it's it's mostly just because, well, I mean, I'm interested in the drum. The Indo-Europeans also use their own forms of drums and, and uh, other instruments as well. And... Uh, yeah, my main focus has been to to try to uh, revive some of these ancient um, rituals. So, hence, my focus has been mostly there. 
I'm interested in the role that gender plays or doesn't play in in these traditions, because on the one hand, we could say, you know, where the culture has a strong division of gender roles, then you kind of get male and female versions. And when the culture doesn't have that strong division, they kind of do the same thing. But on the other hand, there's neurological differences and physical differences, and men and women have different kinds of experiences. We often associate women with uh, nature and the earth a little bit more. They go through menstrual cycles. So there are some structural differences, and then there are some cultural differences or non-differences. How do you think about um, men and women in shamanic traditions? When it comes to to men and women in shamanic traditions, I know from the Asiatic lineages, some of them, uh, from what I know about, there can be a difference in that um, the the women are not allowed to do particular things and vice versa, the, the men at times. So there's like a separation of that, of, of like the functions that they can play, like what kind of people they can uh they can do the service for or what kind of ritual they can do and what kind of ritual they can't do or what spirit they can work with and and vice versa but it's like but it differs it's very like uh depending on the culture and the lineage and uh with with some it's not like separated on gender but separated on the type of shaman uh that they are because, uh, for instance, in Mongolia, you have the um, the white shaman and the black shaman, and then you have the um, the yellow shaman. That's you know the one that's more connected to to Buddhism as well. And uh, there's a difference there where the black shaman can't go to the upper world, and the white shaman can't uh, uh, interact with the spirits from the underworld. And you have to go to these different shamans for different things. But that's just that's a very cultural um, thing. There's been some modern cultures, you know, the yeah. Soviet Union comes to my mind, that would um, go to schools and pick out children for certain things. Like, we want to win Olympic gold medals, so we're looking for children that might make good runners or good swimmers or something like that to train them to do that task. Uh, if you were going through the schools or if you were looking at children, looking for who might be a good shaman, what would you look for? What would be the signs that would indicate that uh, this or that child might have strong potential? I would, I would very much say, you know, and, and I wanted to frame it in in a um, in a Western uh, framework. I would say, you know, it would have to be someone who has a strong connection, generally, to the unconscious. Someone who. Uh, Maybe has been forced inward or went in inward more, and is, has a deeper connection uh, to to like yeah the unconscious and with more um, maybe to some degree nature uh, as well. It's more because uh, it, very much with the shamans uh, first, you know, it's you, you deal with the mind born spirits and you deal with that and then you deal and then you uh you finally get to the point where you can work with the the world born ones but it's it very much seems to be that uh, that's at least one one thing but then it's also kind of about like uh, a kind of an attitude too because 
it can't be um yeah i don't know it, it's very much yeah about an attitude too it's like you, you you have to be willing to to face the unknown you have to be willing to face i guess things most people would find uh very um yeah uh scary disturbing or otherwise terrifying because it can be you know it's it's all it's not all like a rainbow and uh, rainbows and butterflies it's not all uh uh all yeah there there's some there's bad spirits there's there's bad stuff out there and uh there's it's it's very much the the good the bad and the ugly when it comes to to shamanism there's it's the full spectrum experience of uh of like of life itself and you need to really have that um inner core there to be able to really withstand that and that's also what in the shamanic cultures they're looking for that's why these initiation rituals are as tough as they are because you really need to you really need to be uh, i guess courage like an immense amount of courage is needed to to be able to do this kind of uh, of work and also uh, a sense of I guess mindfulness or like uh, you need to be perceptive you need to be not rash you need to really be be able to listen to the spirits you need to really be um there, there's a, a real sense of uh kind of wisdom that needs to be cultivated uh as well but that's kind of also part in the you know the initiation of of the shaman but it's it's very important to to have that because you can't just run off and and do something yeah you know it, it's a balancing of courage and wisdom and um and and being perceptive and also um having the ability to to uh not be too fixated because not everything is as it seems not all spirits are as they seem not all uh situations you encounter as a shaman are what they seem either it's because sometimes particular situation you encounter you can be like oh i need to do this to do it but it it it's always slightly different there's always a catch there's always like something about it you need to really be be fine with the unknown fine with uh being very uh being somewhat flexible regarding you know the the, the spirits in in some in some way you know there's the structure uh yes but there needs to be some adaptability there that you uh, i guess a trickster like quality that you can like uh you can like um look at it from different angles because uh, it's very needed because you, you can otherwise get very um stuck sometimes or you try to resolve something uh and and yeah you can't be like hard-headed or, or like too hard-headed about that like you can't be just like uh like a, a ram or a goat trying to just uh push your way through either in the spirit world that doesn't doesn't go well either so there's there's a real like uh yeah flexibility there needed too and it's i guess maybe uh why it's rare for uh, regarding like you know the actual shamans to to find such a individual that has these kind of qualities but you know it, it can also be cultivated i would uh, probably think as well that kind of like mentality because it's it's very much an attitude to to have where is your research going next what are you looking forward to exploring more about shamanism 
Well, I've been looking a little bit more into the Bond tradition um, recently, and mostly uh, lately I've been uh, looking actually more into like the um, the more ancient uh, reconstructed Proto-Indo-European uh, traditions to shed a little bit more, uh, to try to shed more light onto the different uh, Indo-European traditions. Particularly, um, I guess the Koryos tradition uh, has been for a long time uh, of great interest and um, been really trying to bring the, um, the shamanic and union lens with like a modern psychological lens together. That's really been my focus lately to, to uh, create like a, that kind of like bridge, uh, at least for myself and maybe for, for others too. And to uh, try to make it a bit more, I guess, understandable from a Western lens, like what's exactly, like, you know, uh, what we're here trying to do. Are you, um, do you pay attention to the reconstruction of the Proto-Indo-European languages in order to, like, use that as a lens to see into what their practice and experience was like? Uh, to some degree, yes, but I mostly tend to look at like the um, the mytholo- uh, the mythological um, layers, mostly like the reconstructed uh, mythological figures and and deities, and then try to use that, and then I go uh, immediately back towards the Indo-European deities, and I'm starting to like uh, and you know and also spirits, you know, trying to understand the connections between them these different fragments and to try to um, hold them all together as these different cultures that they are and try to figure out what are like, uh, yeah, what what are these different elements and how can uh, me understanding this maybe help in understanding other aspects of these uh, different cultures because they originally came from, you know, this proto-Indo-European culture. So I'm trying to look at all these different cultures to to understand this. It's, for instance, with like the chorus tradition, they had these, you know, um, dances and drumming uh, involved in um, in these traditions as well with the Ulfertnar, but also the Koribantas and uh, with these other warrior traditions linked to like Apollo and Mars as well. It's initiatory uh, traditions or with uh, Arctea from Artemis, for instance. And I've been looking at um been yeah looking at that and trying to like put that more and more together to have an understanding of that to understand like you know also with the mystery schools uh to understand like um where did all of this come from like how uh, just what they uh these rituals what they do because you know there's an influence from all these different cultures on on each other and it comes from an earlier base and I'm trying to to really uh, find the commonalities with that and to try to um, see like, okay, so I have all of this knowledge from the ancient, uh, you know, these ancient cultures, then I want to bring it together with like modern insights and then also look at the Asian shamanic um, traditions and what they do, what works, and then try to see like uh, uh, what can I then understand and uh, regarding the Indo-European traditions and like how can I uh, try to at least in some way reconstruct something and bring something back to to life? And I use like Jungian psychology also with it to look at the symbolism 
and the symbolic meaning of it and try to uh, tie that back into modern psychology and to really like try to understand like uh, what does it psychologically and then like how can we tap into that to uh, to to um, create that uh, again that that kind of effect uh, what they uh, what they were trying to describe in 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 these kind of texts for uh, for instance, the the mystery schools, especially uh, from some of the information that I've been able to to gather, there's like, it's, it's like yeah, but it depends. I mean, the Mitraic mysteries, they apparently, uh, from what I've been able to put together from a lot of the research, they seem to have done a lot of breathwork rituals. That seem to uh, be the 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 main thing that they were doing, meditating and breathwork in their caves, but like uh, and and other rituals, but. Uh, yeah, but I'm trying to like yeah, put it together. But with the choreos, it's with the drumming, uh, especially that I'm interested in. Like how uh, how can I connect? Uh, is there a connection with uh, with the shamanic practice in in Asia in some sense? And how and how how do uh, what are they? What were they trying to do? Have you paid much attention to Gobekli Tepe and some of these really old sacred sites that they're being unearthed? Uh, in yes. No, I have. And um, what what do you find most interesting about those? The most interesting regarding those would be I've been looking into uh, into like the. Um, into the more like ritualistic aspects uh, that that are, and it's very very much like hypotheses of different people and uh, of like what what probably happened uh, there. And the most interesting thing regarding that is like one hypothesis that I think uh, has a good potential of being uh, being true, which would be uh, the um, yeah the. Um, rituals uh connected to to like the heroes gamos this coming together of the masculine and feminine symbolically you know in heaven and earth and um there's that uh going on with that and that's been the yeah the the most interesting part regarding that and to look at the older traditions uh later and in, in these areas a lot of those old traditions put a lot of focus on the stars. Uh, and that's partly because their culture needed navigation and calendars and the stars were the way that you organized sort of the framework of the yeah. world back then. Um, I've never been that focused on the star aspect of it myself. How do you think about the relationship between uh, shamanic cultures and uh, heavenly bodies, let's say? I don't actually know too much about the connection between the heavenly bodies and uh, and shamanism. I know uh, that in uh, particular cultures, uh, for instance, the the, um, the Great Bear, for instance, uh, is of of great importance. But that's about it, really, that I've looked into it. Yeah, I'm curious whether, and I don't know whether there's a distinct difference in flavor between the shamanism that focuses very much on the biosphere and the shamanism that also opens up to sort of uh, cosmic ranges of experience. 
when you um what what do you think's the the neatest thing about the bond tradition what's drawing you towards bond uh what's been drawing me towards bond really is to try to understand windhorse uh deeper from like um from uh, the shamanic perspective uh, deeper and then I'm also interested in to see the overlap between uh, wind horse and um, Indo-European uh, ideas regarding like you know figures such as Pegasus and uh, the chariot and and soul flight but uh, yeah I, th I think I uh, should also soon uh, go for yeah, we'll wrap this up in a couple of minutes. Um, yeah, my only other question is sort of what's next for you personally, right? You've done a bunch of healing work. What's your next internal step in shamanism? Where are you going next? Within shamanism, where am I going next? I guess just to, uh, yeah, to, to, well, I guess like, just continue to i guess um build the relationship with with the spirits and to actually uh try to i guess bring i guess in in an uh in the true indo-european sense try to bring the <laughs> the experience uh towards other people to to reconnect them back to to nature and to um to i guess uh try to work on uh on for people to understand this symbolic uh, lens, it's really uh, yeah one of the the big things that I focus on. Next to yeah the connection to nature for sure, a uh, deep one. Well, fantastic! Uh, this has been great. Yeah, thanks for uh, exploring all these really fascinating themes with us, Ralph, and be well. Yes, thank you. <laughs>